if I think really, really hard, I can remember being in your shoes, seniors, 28 years ago to the day, uh, May 22nd, 1994, I need to give up thinking that I'm still young. That's the way it goes. Well, Pastor Tom is gone today. Pastor John is gone today. Eric is under the weather. So Scott, thank you for filling in this morning. Um, my name is Perry. If you don't know me, I'm part of the staff team here, and it's great to be able to open God's word with you this morning as we continue on in worship. I've been taught a lot of things in my life, and I've forgotten a lot of what I've been taught in my life, but there's one thing that no one had to teach me and that I would like to say I've continued to be an expert in. I've even grown in my expertise in this area throughout my life, and it might sound like I'm bragging, but it's true. And it's something called impatience. Now, in case you're wondering what it means to be impatient, let me describe it for you. I'm the kind of guy who, when I go to the grocery store, and if I go in the checkout line, I want the shortest checkout line, and I'm a little bit annoyed if I see that another checkout line is going faster than the one that I'm in. I'm the kind of guy who, when I go up to a gas station, I want to make sure that there's an available pump, and if there's not, I'm bothered by that. I'm the kind of guy who doesn't really want to get wrapped up into a meandering conversation that really doesn't have a conclusion to it. This is what it's like to be an impatient person, in case you're wondering. I'd like to think, though, that the world has also just inspired me and equipped me to become even more impatient. If I think about the technological advances that have happened in recent years, everything's aimed at a faster computing speed or maybe a quicker way to communicate with people, a quicker way to travel. Things are now on demand. And in all, it's just helped me become even more and more impatient, which is why people like me would be immediately confronted by today's passage in James chapter 5, verse 7, when he starts off this way. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Patience is all over the pages of Scripture as an attribute for God's people. Patience is something that Paul would call a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, and on and on. But patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we are to have in our lives. So when James calls the brothers and sisters in Christ, who he's addressing, to be patient, I'm immediately confronted by this. A really important word in this statement, though, is the word therefore. It points us up to verses 1 through 6, that Tom talked about last week. You might imagine two different groups of people here. On my right over here, you would have the very wealthy farmers or the landowners that James addressed in verses one through six. And then over here on my left, your right, you would have the very poor people who were working in the fields, many of them who are believers. So you have unrighteous rich and you have righteous poor people over here. That doesn't mean that poor people are automatically righteous or rich people are automatically unrighteous. Phew. But what it does mean is that James is addressing a very specific situation. And as he turns to the rich, the ones who are oppressing the poor, this is what he said to them last week. We saw in verse one, he said, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
And then down in verse four, he said, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Some harsh language for them. But now as he's addressed them, he turns over to the people who are being oppressed and he says to them, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. What does patience look like? That's one of the questions we might have. But patience is something that we're supposed to have until the coming of the Lord. James doesn't give us a defined set of time. He doesn't say be patient for another couple weeks or be patient for another year. But he just leaves it open-ended, but it's until the coming of the Lord. The word coming here is a word that's really relevant for them because it has to do with the coming of Jesus in judgment. It was a word that was used in the New Testament times outside of the Bible to just talk about the visit of a king or a, a dignitary who would visit a city. But here in the New Testament, it's taken on the new meaning of God coming in judgment. If you're being oppressed, if you're subject to injustice, the word of comfort for you is that God is returning, that Jesus is coming to judge. This is their comfort that they would have. Patience, though, is particularly difficult when you're talking about a situation of suffering or affliction. I think about some of the hardest days of my life have been, as we might say in an expression, the longest days of life. I think about days when I was in the military, a basic training, marching off to a meal, hoping that it's dinner, but then remembering that it's only lunch. Remembering another day, about a year after Katie and I had gotten married, and I woke up with this splitting side ache. I had no idea what was going on. All I knew is I felt awful, and it just got worse and worse throughout the day to the point where we uh, made the decision we have to get to the emergency room. So we got in the car and drove on the same set of roads that we've driven on dozens of times before. We'd never stopped at the ER. We'd gone past it to other places, but on this day, that same route was painful for me. Every little bump in the road was like a kick in the gut. Every stop sign and every red light at an intersection was a great annoyance. Why? Because I had appendicitis and I just had to have surgery to have my appendix removed. But I was in that moment afflicted. I was in that moment felt a sense of suffering. And because of that, just an ordinary occurrence, an ordinary drive in the car felt like the longest road trip I've ever been on. That's the plight of suffering, and that's the struggle of patience for someone who is suffering. What's a natural response that we might have to suffering? You know, we might, in the case of what's going on here in the text, we might lash out in revenge. We might retaliate against the people who are oppressing us. Or if it's not that same scenario, but we're in a, a situation of pain like I had with appendicitis, we go right to the emergency room, to the doctor, and we get the appendix removed, or we get the tooth pulled that's causing us so many troubles. We do whatever we can when we're suffering to get out of it. That's why this is a pretty radical statement for James to say, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your affliction, be patient. It's not a very satisfying call. But what does patience look like? James is about to show us that in the next verse where he says this. 
He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. What does a farmer do as the farmer waits and as the farmer is patient? A farmer in between planting and waiting for a crop is not just sitting around with idle time. Farmers have a lot of work, and in this day, they would actually plow the ground twice. They would plow it first to break it up, and then they would scatter the seed and then plow it again a second time in order to cover the seed back up. But then there's all of the, the weeding that you might have to do. You might have fertilizing to take care of. Anything you can do to help cultivate the plant as it's growing up and maturing. The farmer does anything but just sit around. So the first thing we see about patience is that it is not passive. Patience is not just sitting around doing nothing. As we wait, as we are patient, we are active and we are dedicated. Last week, we had the 6-8 project here, and I am so encouraged by what has come out of that so far. We had the food drives across all three of our campuses, which gave a great amount of food that will now be distributed to people in the area who are struggling with food scarcity. We had the serve fair here just behind me in the cafe. Since Sunday, we've had over 84 people sign up to volunteer in some way to serve. That is awesome. Yes, yes, you all deserve a hand for that. We're incredibly encouraged by the results there. And then you know about the ongoing work with our kingdom assignment, reaching out to help the Marshall Fire victims, to walk alongside of them and to help resource them as they rebuild. And in addition to that, we also talk about the ongoing work that we're doing with Afghan refugee families, walking beside them. This is exactly the kind of active and dedicated patience that we are supposed to exhibit as we wait until the coming of the Lord. We're not sitting around passively, but we're engaged actively in the Lord's work in kingdom business. But as we go back and think about the farmer, we not only see that the farmer is active as the farmer waits, but we also see that the farmer has a clarity about what is and is not his to control. That's a second aspect of what it means to be patient. You see how the farmer waits for the, the early and the later rains, this is essential for the crop to grow. The farmer has no option in the first century to set up some irrigation system that's state of the art to make sure that there's the optimal amount of water at just the right time so that we'll have the most abundant crop possible. But instead, the farmer has to wait for that kind of rain from the hand of the Lord of heaven and earth. The farmer relies on the Lord to provide not just with a totally hands-off kind of attitude or perspective, but with an active engagement that understands, though, that it's ultimately up to the Lord to provide the fruit. That's what it means to be patient. That's what it means for us to wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. And then James just continues on in verse 8, and he talks about how our hearts are meant to be established then. He says, you also then, be patient like the farmer, brothers and sisters. Establish your hearts until the coming of the Lord. The word for establish here is a word strengthen, support. Make sure your heart is firm and engaged. How do you do that? Well, the good news is that there's nothing new here. 
to having a heart that's established or strengthened is to just to participate in the very things that we're called to do as followers of Christ anyways. When we gather together on a Sunday morning, just like this morning, we sing about the victory of Jesus like we just did. That is meant to strengthen and establish our hearts. As we open up God's word like we are right now, that is meant to strengthen and establish our hearts. As we pray together, as we engage with one another in conversation before or after the service, that's meant to strengthen, to establish our hearts. As we engage in smaller groups together, whether it's a life group, a class, a Bible study, that is meant to establish and encourage our hearts. And yes, as we go outside the walls of this building and we serve in the community, that is meant to strengthen and establish our hearts. This is what we engage in. This is what it means to be patient until the coming of the Lord. But there's a warning. James issues a warning now in verse nine, where he says this. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James has had a lot to say in this book about the tongue, about all that we say. And he's shown us that the issue of the tongue is not just that it can inflict great damage on another person, but the danger of the tongue also is that it can reflect or reveal what's inside of our hearts. He said at, the, um, at chapter 3, verse 12, which is not on the slide, but he said, Can a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What he's getting at is that the tongue reflects, the mouth reflects what's going on inside of our hearts. And if we are here grumbling against one another, then that reflects a problem in our hearts. And we are not truly waiting patiently as God calls us to. But at the end of a frustrating season or a long day, isn't it so easy for us to turn on each other, to grumble against each other? to complain about something, the way somebody is talking or not engaging in the work that they should be. It's so easy to become irritated and frustrated. James knows that, and he wants to point out to us that this is not what patience looks like. Patience isn't simply waiting without any standard, but it's waiting in righteousness. That's what it means to wait patiently. And this is what patience is. Now let's look at what patience looks like, not in farming, but in the life of somebody who's following the Lord in any setting. James takes us there next. He says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. First, James points us to the prophets as an example of suffering and patience. At the top of the job description for the prophets would be expressions like, must be willing to subject oneself to bodily harm. Must be willing to speak things that nobody wants to hear. Must be willing to travel to places that people don't want to see you at. This is what the prophet does. We could look at a lot of different examples of this in scripture. Let me give you just a few. If you look at 1 Kings, you see the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 
If you know that story, you know that Queen Jezebel put a death threat on Elijah's life. Elijah gets up, he's fearful, and it says in 1 Kings 19 that he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. Then later on in the chapter, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And then we read on and as he says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Isn't this what suffering can do? Suffering can make us feel like we are alone on the planet in our suffering. Like there's no one else who's possibly experienced what we are going through. And Elijah is in that place. That's one example of the suffering of a prophet. If we read on just a little bit further in 1 Kings chapter 20, we read of an unnamed prophet who needs to go confront the king of Israel. But he needs a visual aid and there are no makeup artists in this day. So he asks somebody to beat him up. Apparently he needs to go before the king with a black eye or even a broken nose. That's part of the suffering of a prophet. You can't even deliver the message until you've been beat up. But then as we keep reading on in 1 Kings chapter 22, we read of a prophet named Micaiah. Micaiah also has a message to confront the king of Israel with. But when the king of Israel hears that Micaiah is headed his direction, he says, I hate him for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Micaiah delivers the message to the king. And meanwhile, the king has his own prophets, false prophets around him who are so offended by Micaiah's word from the Lord that one of the false prophets goes up on national television in front of a live audience and slaps Micaiah across the, across the face, Oscar style. And Micaiah then is thrown into prison and given meager rations of bread and water. I apologize if you don't know what I'm referencing there. And then as you go on and you read about prophets like Jeremiah, who's thrown into a pit and left to die, we see that the prophets suffered and endured in great ways. This is the plight of a prophet, that through their suffering, they exhibited patience, and that's our example to follow as well. But James goes on to another example too, a well-known example of Job. Even if you haven't grown up in the church, you probably are familiar with a little bit of Job's story at least. You might know that Job lost almost everything in his life. He lost loved ones. He lost property. He lost wealth. He lost a lot of family. Job lost his own health in some very, very bleak ways. But through it all, Job never lost his faith in the Lord. Job is an example that when we read through the story of his life, we might say, wow, that's a curious example that James is using because Job complained and Job, Job often had questions and doubts, but he never walked away from the Lord. He never took his wife's advice in chapter two, verse nine, to just curse God and die. Job remained steadfast. And because of that, he too is an example for us of what it looks like to walk with the Lord. Job is that example for us to follow. You know, I think of our own case here at Calvary, and in the past few months, we've had some funerals for some dear saints who have been a part of this church for decades. We've seen people who are, in a way, pillars of this church who are now with the Lord. 
they endured suffering with patience and they were steadfast in their own lives. And they too could fit in this category of people who we could look at as examples for us to follow and to be encouraged by. This is a journey that we're all on, that we would be steadfast and patient like they are. Notice how James is able to just recall these examples so quickly. How he's able to just point to their lives and assume that his listeners know of these examples too. That's an example for us that we would be so familiar with the saints in God's word that we would be able to recall their suffering when we are in our own season of suffering and be encouraged by their own steadfastness when we are in a position of needing to be steadfast as well. None of them did it perfectly though. None of them were perfect in the way they responded, but they had their faith in a perfect savior to deliver them. I think of the words of the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I can relate to those words, but we turn the page to great is God's faithfulness, that God is the one who sustains us in those places and in those moments. That God is the one who enabled them to, st- to be steadfast and he's the one that enables us as well. So if you put these two sections together, the first verses that we looked at, and then you look at 10 and 11 here with these examples of people, we can, we can see almost these two different motions in mind that we look ahead and we cling to the promise of God's coming in the future. And we find encouragement to cling strongly and firmly to that by the examples of God's faithfulness in the lives of other people in the past. We look ahead and we cling to God's coming and we're encouraged and strengthened by what's behind us and the examples of the lives of other people around us. But here again, we have a warning from James in verse 12. James says this, but above all my brothers, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Like verse 9, this is another warning related to our speech, the way we would talk to each other. The thing we do more than anything in life probably is we, we speak, we talk. So our words reflect what's going on inside of our heart, like we've already said. Here in this case, it's not about grumbling against each other, but it's about truthfulness. It's about trustworthiness. It's about integrity in our words. If you think about it, we are placing our trust in the truthfulness and in the integrity of God. We're putting our hope that what God says is true is in fact true. We as God's people then ought to be people whose word can also be trusted. This is part of what it means to live patiently, that as we wait, we would be the kind of people who reflect the truthfulness and the integrity of our Savior. We would be the kind of people whose yes means yes and whose no means no in a day where words are cheap. This is how we're called, though, to wait patiently until the coming of the Lord. So we've seen a little bit about what patience is. We've seen it in the example of a farmer. We've seen a little bit about what patience does in the lives of the prophets and Job. But we need to also get a glimpse of where patience comes from. We kind of skipped over this earlier. But as we look back at 10 and 11, 
we need to give our attention here to what James says at the end here, the end of this statement where he says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now he's probably referencing directly the life of Job because he said, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. If you read near the end of Job in chapter 42, Job uses those same verbs, hearing and seeing, when he's talking and confronted by God. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you after he'd gone through all of that suffering. It's possible that God uses our seasons of suffering in a way so that we would not only hear him, but that we would actually see him that we would experience him in a more deep way, in a more profound way. But more immediate to the book of James, we see also that the purpose of the Lord in being steadfast in suffering is something that James has been talking about since the very beginning. If you go back to chapter one, verses two through four, James began this way, where he said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has a purpose in our lives, even in the moments and the days and the seasons that we don't understand because they're full of affliction, they're full of suffering. God is doing something in us, even in those terrible, tragic, difficult moments. He's bringing about something that would make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you believe that? See, our, our confidence in God's character is where patience comes from, that he would have this purpose in even suffering that he's bringing about in our lives. But not only that, if we go back to what he said at the end of verse 11, he said, you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. These words are something that are probably meant to echo a common refrain of scripture that goes all the way back to Exodus 34, six and seven. There, this is what the Lord said to Moses. He passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But for the ones oppressing the poor here, who will by no means clear the guilty? What James is doing is he's going back and he's referencing God's character because it needs to be in the forefront of our minds as we think about being patient until the Lord's return. We have to remember who this God is and his character and our confidence has to be in that character if we're going to be people who wait patiently until his coming. It's essential that we have this in our minds, that we would be the kind of people who can recall God's character, that it is steady and unchanging, that God is good, that he is, in James's language, compassionate and merciful. That is where our confidence comes from, in order to be patient until the end. We are a people who look ahead to that coming and we cling to it because we know that our God is trustworthy. We know that he is steadfast himself so we can be steadfast as we wait 
Great is God's faithfulness. I said earlier that this runs throughout scripture, the idea of patience, the idea of waiting. Let me leave you with the words of King David in Psalm 27, where he just says simply, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Remember, establish, strengthen your heart. Be strong, let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. May we be people like David, like James, like the prophets, like Job, and like the saints before us who have been patient and waited for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we look to you because we know that on our own, patience is not something that comes easy. Patience is not natural for us, Lord. We confess that or admit that to you this morning. So Lord, I pray for me, I pray for my friends here this morning that you would enable us to be what we are not on our own. God, that by your strength, that by the work of your spirit in us, that we would be people who patiently cling to your promise for your coming. Lord, whether we find ourselves in a time of suffering or not, as we sit here this morning, whether we are in good circumstances, circumstances that we would choose or not, Lord, I pray that we all would have in common, that we are waiting patiently for you, trusting in you because of your faithfulness, God. You have demonstrated it in so many lives. You've demonstrated it in so many ways. I pray that we would recall those things, Lord, and that we would celebrate the fact that you are trustworthy as you assure us that you are coming. So we pray along with your people, Lord, who've gone before us. Amen. Come, Lord. Come quickly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in song today?